and this is an understatement on one hand, but uh, from an economic and politi- political perspective, I think this being an, an environment unlike any is not an understatement. Um, at the upcoming G20 meeting, they're going to focus on, uh, I'm sorry, G7 meeting, they want to focus on health uh, economies and protecting democracy, uh, which are some tall orders for the G7. Um we just think the environment is is not just unusual from an economic perspective, but this is one of the most uh, unusual and different uh, social and political environments we've seen in most of our lifetime. So um, we think the issues are, are changing and we're going to make a change for a call change for ARS with this one. Um, we've been in the deflation camp for some time. We think inflationary pressures are building and uh for a variety of reasons, and that has some implications. So I want to touch on that and then touch on how uh, we'd see the taxes and uh, other issues that Mark just described play through. So um, this is a rapid restart. It's not a normal recovery. The business cycle is uh, very different than past. And in past recessions, you just had demand drop off, um, uh, often created by uh, central bank policy trying to navigate a uh, overheated economy. This was a double hit, a natural disaster where you had supply and demand shortfalls and the reopening unleashes both um, those issues back in the market. So as supply chains are rebuilding and you combine that with the massive pent-up demand that we're seeing, um, further supported by the unbelievable levels of monetary and fiscal stimulus, um, that's resulting in higher inflation pressures. And um, what's is one of the big battles and one of the big disconnects is central banks, including the Fed, want to see inflation overshoot their targets, which is an uncomfortable place for investors to be living in because they worry about losing control. That's not a fear that we have. Um, we think that there are forces at work that will lead to some shorter-term inflation. Some will stick, others won't, and that's going to be the challenge. From a corporate perspective, whether you're private or public doesn't really matter. You're sitting with, you're dealing with component shortages, rising material prices, shipping problems, delays at the ports and the like. At the same time, the prospects of higher taxes are weighing on, uh, weighing on companies, especially for multinationals, where we think that's going to be the area in the U.S. tax changes that are going to be hit the hardest. There is a reality that commodity prices are rising and in some cases are really rising, like lumber adding $24,000 to the average cost of a home. That is about $330,000 in the U.S. So when you add $24,000 onto that price, it's meaningful in terms of the bill, and that's just the lumber prices. Um, so it's really going to be necessary as we're going through this reorientation of supply chains to make them more resilient. That's a bigger challenge. How do they do that? and do that in the face of really unusual political wins um, working against some of the top corporations. And it's a reminder for the companies that they're going to need to invest in innovation and people, and we'll come back to why on that. When we think about the world, it's really important to think about the total addressable market. And the most representative total addressable market is global GDP, which is on the rise, as I talked about in recent weeks. They're projecting, I think, uh, 6% kind of uh, GDP growth this year globally. The U.S. is now on track for something like an 8 to 10% GDP growth. So think of the U.S. as a, as a total addressable market continuing to rise. And why is that important? 
it goes to what are we going to, how are we going to fund all the things that we're looking to fund right now? How do you think about that? If GDP continues to grow in an effective way, that is creating the opportunity to finance some of the problems that we have to finance and deal with some of those issues. There are some really unusual, quirky things going on right now, which we think are going to have people kind of off out of bounds. This is a chart of personal income going back to the 60s. And then what you see in the blue line is personal income growing to 22 and change trillion dollars now. It's on its way with the latest um, proposals by the government to be moving up to 24 trillion. But if you strip out the bottom line, which is government transfer payments, uh, to people, social benefits, which are all the things that we've been working on and what are currently being proposed. And this doesn't have the latest ones. So you're going to add another $3.6 trillion to it. What you see is that in that bottom line, how unusual this environment is when you're looking at $8 trillion of so- short-term social payments to persons, because they're not permanent payments. A lot of these are the $1,400 here or the fourteen. $100 this year, $600, and then $1,200 last year. All these payments going in are creating some short-term distortions. Looked at it differently, this is the uh, personal savings rates rising and falling and then rising again in in tandem with new government payments that are coming, social programs. And again, this red line does not include the latest proposals by the, the uh, Biden administration. So, you know, you're looking at bringing that upwards of that red line exceeding the chart here, moving above $8 trillion. And then you're starting to see inflation expectations rise. And this shift gives you a sense of, okay, we're seeing inflation move up, but on a historic basis, 2.5% inflation levels are not that high um, and certainly manageable by the economy. What I think is the challenge is the rate of change that was has been so sudden And that just shows you how the magnitude of the monetary and fiscal stimulus that's hitting the U.S. system and what that means to inflation expectations. But people need to bear in mind that once you have an unleash of spending that creates pressures for uh, supply and demand against tight markets, the next year you're working off of that level. So it's, again, what's the rate of change from 21 to 22 and does that start to slow down? So longer term, we're not seeing uh, long-term inflationary pressures unless they start showing up in a couple key areas, which I'll touch on in a second. And then you look at the tax issue. So let me just touch on this quickly. This is a chart of federal tax receipts going back to the 1929 period. On average, regardless of who's in, the, in office, regardless of what the tax policies have been, We've averaged about tax receipts as a percent of GDP, about 17.6%, certainly in the post-World War II period. So think of all the different changes we've had. What the government collects versus what's the advertised uh, numbers are often very different. So think about uh, our GDP and what the government's going to collect. Think of it around 17, 18% of GDP. And you see the changes, you know, from period to period. A lot of it has to do more with the economic activity than it does the tax policy itself. So this is why is this so unusual? Well, with inflationary pressures on the rise, what can companies do and what does it mean for companies and consumers? Well, consumers can actually just pay it and they will do that for certain 
products. Um, they'll do that for iPhones and other things for as long as they're getting continued value. Um, but they also could react by just reining in spending, and that varies depending on what economic position you're in and also how you're going to be impacted by proposed policy changes, whether it's on the low end, not continuing to see the uh, benefits or having unemployment benefits at a higher rate roll off, or whether you're seeing on the high end concerns about tax changes, uh, will that change their spending habits or not? In some cases, yes, other cases, no. But that's one thing. They could react by not spending. They could also react by finding lower cost alternatives, the Amazonification of the global economy. Um, that is a real issue, and substitution is a big issue, particularly in uh, commoditized areas that you can see lower-cost alternatives constantly on the rise. Um, companies can pass on the cost if they, if they find willing takers, and you're seeing that in labor and other areas where you have tight supply and demand, or companies can su substitute capital for labor. That's going to be a key element in our view of what happens going forward, and it's going to be a big differentiation of who wins and who loses. So how do we think about this and how should investors think about this, whether you're in the private markets, the public markets, venture, doesn't matter. The battle between the Fed and the market over rate moves and will the bond vigilantes be able to force the Fed's hand to move earlier or can the Fed be resolute and other central banks around the world be resolute in letting inflation run hot? for a little bit longer period. That is a real issue. And if you go back to that chart, 2.5% is not really high inflation. Um, it's high relative to where we've been, but certainly not high relative to where we've, where we've been historically. I got in the business in 1981. I think the prime rate was 18 at that time. Uh, so put in perspective, we've managed to have stronger economies in higher interest rate periods. And if you go back through time, I think to the 30s, the average for the 10 year is about five to six percent. The average for the, uh, overnight rates is going to be short term rates will be about two to three percent. We're looking at two to three percent, uh, hopefully getting there on the 10 year. Um, we're still at one five, one six. So a long way to go. That battle is underway. I think the market is probably going to be surprised by the Fed's resolution to stick with their plan. Uh, because of the longer term transitory nature. So think about we're unleashing three trillion of savings right now. It won't be all spent at once. It'll probably be spent a trillion dollars a year or so, give or take over the next two to three years. And if that is the case in years two and three, you're not going to have the inflationary effect that you would have had in the first go around because you're looking at year over year change for inflation, not, not the absolute. The other key concept, and I think this is one we should spend more time on thinking about, and I think the media does not do a good job, is the focus on wage rates or what you pay an hourly employee versus the wage bill for a company, what your total cost of, of labor is, are two very different things. And what you really should be focused on is the wage bill, not the wage rates. Think about it. If you're having work done on your house and you have a contractor come in, you're less concerned about their, their hourly rates as you are about the total cost to you. That's the way to think about the wage bill versus wage rates. If the wage bill goes up, that becomes a permanent cost that's embedded into your system. If the wage rates go up, you can substitute labor for ca uh, capital for labor, and that actually keeps your wage rates can go up, but your wage bill could go down or stay constant. 
And that means the companies are not going to be facing the same type of pressures. So this is a critical concept that we think people should be more focused on. And it's not something that's actually taught as much as it should be about how to think about the wage inflation. And when we think about it, we think this is where the market might be wrong, that the wage bills are not going to be as high as the wage rate increases and the fear about what does it do if we go to $15 or $17 per hourly wages? Um, if you can substitute uh, technology and innovation for those hours or number of workers, you can keep your wage bill down and deal with this quite effectively. Some companies will be much better positioned to do that than others. And that is going to focus on what's the spend um, on employee education, what's the spend on innovation and technology. We think that the continued investment in the secular drivers are going to matter, and that's what people should be focused on and not getting caught up in the short term as much as they have. And believe me, the media would be out of business if they said every every time, if you worry about this, don't worry about this now. In three years, it's not going to be an issue. They wouldn't have much news to report. We think the secular drivers are what's going to matter. The total addressable markets matter, too, and look for countries and companies with large and growing total addressable markets. One of the most biggest attractions to China is their growing middle class, a massive total addressable market. The companies that can participate in that are going to be the winners. And remember, the capital always flows to the highest rate of return. You want to get there early. Capital can seek out these things. You just have to be in the right spot. And the ability to pass on pricing is very variable by company to company. And that's going to determine who's going to benefit or not. And if you go back to the auto industry as one example and look at the difference between Tesla coming out with their products and Ford, who didn't get government bailouts, so they kept all their pension liabilities, um, how, what if it, it's not a fair fight to start because of so much of the costs are going to health and uh, pension benefits that are, could be going into cars so, and to profits. So that's something to keep in mind. And the companies that benefit from higher prices are just going to attract a lot of capital. They can win. You're not going to, if chip prices get passed through to Apple, they can add $15 to their phone and people will pay it. Um, not everyone will. So some people on the lower end may or may not, but things that are so essential, you can pass on the prices. Other things are going to be substituted uh, in different ways. Commodities are transitory in pricing, although this cycle in certain areas, commodities may go a little bit longer. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that that's a permanent issue. Um, wage bills can be permanent, which leads you to think about what really matters for companies right now and for governments. If you're thinking about the right policies to get out and navigate the restart and the fallout of the economic environment we're in. And just to put in perspective, I saw a number yesterday that Globally, 1 billion people have lost their livelihoods in the last 12 months due to the pandemic. Wow. Right? That's about a third of the labor force globally. And that's where innovation, technology, education all come in because as companies are dealing with rising prices, they're going to look for uh, a labor force that's highly educated and that can deal with the innovation that's going to bring you back to lowering your cost base. So that means strong immigration and strong education policies are going to be critical to countries coming out of this. You look at the difference between the U.S. and Canada in immigration policies, and Canada is way ahead of the U.S. in what they're trying to do to marry their immigration, 
to their economic and social policies to make it work for, for all involved. <clears throat> Without getting too political here, and I'm going to, so let me rephrase that. Getting a little political here, both parties have gotten the immigration policy for the U.S. wrong by focusing only on the social aspects of it and not the economic ones. And if they married the two together, you would have a much more cogent and much more positive immigration policy that would support the economic viability of the country going forward in a much more positive way than just focusing on the social elements of it. And that's an area that we can take from other countries. The U.S. allows about 85,000 H-1B visa students uh, a year to get their visas. That's 65,000 undergrad 20,000 uh, graduate students. Canada, as a policy, it's a little different uh, approach, but they're in the three to 400,000 range there for a country that's a tenth our size. That just shows you how different policies can be and how important it is to get that right. And we really need to change the dialogue on that as a country. So our takeaways are inflation's actually going to be run hotter for a while. Um, we think that's going to be a real issue. Um, you want to avoid from an equity investment perspective. We still think equity is the place to be public, private doesn't matter, but you want to avoid the highest and lowest valuation stocks in this environment. The highest ones are going to be uh, viewed very skeptically. The lowest valuation stocks have typically earned it. So we want to be careful on that. Focus on companies with embedded advantages the Apples, the Amazons of the world, people poo-poo them for what they've done, but there's real reasons why they are continuing to be successful. They can take profits and turn them into either um, new opportunities through innovation investments or uh, bolt-ons that create new new uh, markets. Think about the cloud. You know, in 2002, Amazon started on the cloud. It took a long time for it to be developing, and in our view, the cloud is only in the first third of the game. So if you have two-thirds of the game left to play, these guys have huge opportunities. But they can keep, keep taking their cash flows and reinvesting in ways that other companies just either can't or have not been willing to do. In this environment, earnings matter more than anything else, than certainly the multiple expansion. This is a shift from last year to this year. As you start to have higher rates, earnings matter. The earnings reports have been good, but they're not even. Um, so you have to think about how that's going to play out and you have to be really selective where you're going to go in the rest of the world. The India problem is spreading to countries all around it uh, in terms of the health issues. That's going to create slowdowns and create disruptions that are going to be with us for a while. So you really want to focus on the countries that you're investing in. So let's talk about corporate taxes and profits. Um, it looks right now the corporate taxes will rise, but probably likely to the 25% level, not the 28% level. Um, you can get it through there, and I don't think it's going to have that big an impact for most companies. It will hit multinationals a little bit more because of uh, the guilty tax that they're trying to put on. Capital gains and carried interest will likely get hit, but taxes are paid by con consumers, not by corporations. They get passed through. So I think this is going to be an environment where, for the most part, the capital gains uh, issues, that one may create some problems. But keep in mind, about 75% of the market is uh, not taxable in the equity markets in the U.S. So you have a big segment that doesn't care about the, the capital gains increase. Um, 
that's going to that's an important element to keep in mind because between IRAs, our 401ks and the like, um, they're not going to be impacted by this to the same degree. If you are a taxable customer and you're thinking about how you're going to manage taxes in advance of a tax increase on capital gains, you can sell the gains that you have at a profit and buy them back right away. It doesn't have to be you have to get out and go. You can reset your capital gain space if you want to play that game. And it doesn't mean there's going to be massive outflows from the equity markets. So we think there's a little bit of an overreaction in or of greater fear than the reality in this case. But taxes are going to go up because we need them to go. They probably went too far down in the Trump administration. They probably should have gone to 25 percent then. That was the average for OECD nations. So we just think that's a way to look at it. And the other way to think about it is um, if we're not getting the right balance. Alexander, um, I didn't know if you wanted that chicken for lunch. I'm just get a bit, oh, sorry. That's okay. Um, yeah. Lunch orders are coming in right now. So if you oh, yeah. jump on. <laughs> uh, I'm an empty nester that's re-inherited one of my children. So. No, I understand. Um, I'll have a chicken salad. There you go. Thanks, Jim. Um, think about the themes that are going to continue to go on. This digital transformation that we've talked about, we believe is – still underappreciated, and it's going to impact us in so many ways. 5G is still just rolling out the early stages. It's going to enable new transformative technologies to continue to go on. And you've seen that with the advances AI. It it promotes better AI. It will allow healthcare to continue to be able to innovate and lower costs. Um, our inf- infrastructure spend is essential to increase how they pay for that and get it right is something – one of the big changes and why this is so different than previous uh, environments is the with the Trump administration, the Republicans moved from deficit hawks to deficits matter less. Um, that enabled the new administration to say, see, it was OK for you guys, so it's OK for us to take it even further. I think there's a, a natural rate that you can go too far on everything. Um, we may be approaching that, but that's something that to keep in mind. Uh, that shift is a shift that uh, I think Ray Dalio thinks is a little bit more of a, a generational shift, not a uh, short-term shift. But I think we're going to have to see how to pay for everything. And uh, higher taxes are going to be one, one element of it, but I wouldn't run away from markets because of that. I do think you need to be more selective, and I do think it hurts legacy companies more than it'll hurt uh, some of the new and greater innovating companies. So, Mark, with that, I'll stop and uh, open it up to questions. Stephen, um, is, uh, does ARS have a specific view on uh, the movement about around capital gains? Uh, we don't have a a number that they're going to get to. Um, I think that's one that uh, is going to play out. But if you think about the 1% um, or the one-tenth of 1% that will be most impacted by it, um, I imagine that in the past they found ways to circumvent a lot of the tax uh, issues. So, you know, we've had the view that they've been – you don't need to raise taxes as much as you need to fix the loopholes and tighten up the collections and get the – the agencies to to use technology to find the the people that they're not collecting from, and you'd solve a significant problem if you did that. Um, so I think that's one of the elements that uh, I think the government will put a lot more emphasis on. Yellen's focused on it, uh, Biden's focused on it, and in the latest proposals, they are trying to ramp up spending on the IRS. And I can just tell you, we had a SEC exam a couple of years ago, back in 16. 
and the technology improvements from the SEC and their examiners um, and the way they can spot uh, errors and things so much faster. If you applied that same technology spent to the IRS, you would solve a lot of the uh, collection problems. And uh, I, so I think there's low hanging fruit that they should focus on first. Um, I don't, we're not big proponents of tax, raising taxes to punish is a good way to go. Although that's not the view that everyone has on raising taxes. Um, we think there's fairness that you got to just find the right balance. But if you think about it back through that chart I showed, if, you, if we've only collected about 17% of GDP throughout history and we keep growing our GDP, we should be able to manage within a band around there that, that doesn't require um, massive tax increases. So, so Stephen, I want to, um, we, we every week have the same argument about the future, and it sounds like you've just become a, a join the cult of sale and believe that growing the economy will cover off the potential risk of paying the bill. Well, if you grow the economy at a faster rate than the bill, then it's the same as, the, as your household, right? I mean, for so, some reason, Congress hasn't figured that one out, uh, but, you know, Thatcher said it best. Socialism's great until you run out of everyone else's money. Okay. Um, you know, and I think that's the challenge. If we can grow our GDP effectively, and I think infrastructure is a part of that, um, then you can get there. I guess I'm not sure you can solve all the issues that we're trying to solve all at once. Um, and I think if we focused on what's more, what's most important, you'd get there. And it's funny. If you look at the uh, 100 day speeches of the last three presidents, Going back to Obama, you would have thought that was if I showed you the comment without the names, you would have trouble picking who was a Democrat back then versus who was a Republican. And if you looked at the last two years to, uh, you know, the Trump and Biden speeches, you would have a hard time determining if there was a Republican in the crowd. So I think that we are we're going through these changes that, you know, they're going to be somewhat permanent, uh, but growing economy is the key. And it's not you don't grow it by punishing. You grow it by building the pie. So um, that's always been our view. Uh, so, but now I, um, I have another question, which is a real question, because um, I think you have a really good insight into it. So one of the I'm heavily involved in opportunity zones. Opportunity zones really have not been very effective. Money has uh, other than real estate money. No money has been put into there. But if they double the capital gains up to that 39% or 38, 39% that they're talking about, um, it's going to kickstart opportunity zones because all of a sudden you're going to get a 3% return on your money just by putting the money into it. Uh, do you have any comments on that, on my comment? Like, do you see it the same way I'm seeing it or not? I've, I'm not sure that the opportunity. I don't have, I'm not an expert on opportunity zones. So let's start with that. So there's somebody on the call who's more expert on it. I always thought that that was um, an interesting thing that uh, that was um, put a wrapper on that we're going to help these communities out and help the people investing in them more than they help the communities. Um, so I'm not sure it's too early to know if if that's right or not, but that's kind of, you know, tax policy is usually driven by the people it benefits most, not by the people they're trying to help most. So I'm a skeptic in that area, but I do think finding the ways to create innovative innovation zones that really help uh, develop areas or opportunity zones that really make a difference there 
then I think that's great. If it's for tax purposes as the primary driver, then it's just for tax purposes. So I think it has less impact, economic impact that way. So I think there's always a balance in getting these things right from idea to practice. And we do usually miss on that. So I think there are probably more productive ways to incent uh, investment innovation than we've been running. But open to hear from people who are really experienced in opportunity zones to think about it from the economic impact and to achieve what the really improving those areas uh, or was it more helpful to the investors? So, so I'll very quickly. Sorry, let's just I want to make sure we circle around if you don't mind. Hold hold that thought. Any other questions on or comments on? Yeah, Stephen, uh, the fantastic presentation, by the way, and I'm sorry I can't turn my camera on. It's broken somehow today, and I have to fix uh, a driver or something. But my observation on uh, capital gains tax is, is I, I did a chart not too long ago that tracked capital gains rates from you know, nominal rates from about 1960 to the present day. And it seems like 20 to 25 percent is the optimal for tax collection. Seems to be a correlation there. My concern with the increase in the capital gains tax, especially if you get near 40 and 50 percent, is you start driving money to tax advantage vehicles rather than to, to the innovative parts of the economy. Uh, for example, as long as we shelter real estate favorably, uh, you know, I think we'll have a lot more capital being allocated to rent seeking activities rather than investing in the economy and innovation, which are, that's my hypothesis. I'd like to hear your response. Well, I definitely think that people will react to taxes in a way that best benefits them economically. And I don't think Congress um, actually understands often how the real economy works on how capital flows and what the choices that they make drive capital to different areas. Um, as I said, capital always flows to the highest rates of return and is much better at ferreting that out than the government is creating policies to drive it where they want it to go. So I agree with you there. I just don't know the exact number, but I don't think doubling it is a smart move. Um, and I don't think punitive tax policies get you what you want to get to as a nation. Um, and I do think it ultimately will have some effect on choking off some level of innovation. But look at our look at corporate taxes. You know, when when we were at much higher corporate taxes not too long ago, pre-Trump's cut, um, or even go back going back to the Clinton uh, administration, we were able to continue to grow our economy at higher levels. Um, so what's the right level? Uh, that's someone smarter than me to try and figure it out. But I do believe that uh, taxes change behavior and the market usually moves faster than uh, the ability of Congress to think it through. You know, w- one thing to your point, Mark, uh, that we're seeing is more interest in the 1202 um, code uh in in venture where you are and i don't know if anyone else has has been seeing that michael fields you know you've been tracking this and you've been looking at venture i could chime in real quick mark we've been seeing a lot of interest from our family as well as clients on private placement life insurance so really just in in things like that multi pensions like find a structure that is tax advantage but you're still able to allocate to the places you want to allocate private equity private credit liquid, you know, public markets, really wherever you want, and uh, just find a better structure to, to really defer or completely eliminate the taxes. 
Well, we do have a Biden administration agenda. We should invite all the tax advisors. We'll, we'll cover that. Any, any other questions, comments? Stephen, uh, how do you see the minimum wage, uh, potential minimum wage bill play into all this? Yeah, I think, I think that's where the, uh, wage rate versus the wage bill comes in. And, you know, I, I think you're seeing, I, I know we're seeing it. Um, if you look at a franchise like a Dunkin' Donuts, for example, um, what they did with COVID really increased, increased their margins considerably by moving towards the online orders and all that, allowing them to lower their in-store costs and they can afford higher, you know, if you have, you know, raise the, the level by, you know, a couple dollars and cut your staff in half, you can handle that. And so that's where the wage bill concept comes in. And, and that's not getting talked about enough. You know, the fear of, of what it means. And I think this is the rub for Congress is, well, everyone should have higher wages. So they can have a higher living standard, which is makes sense on, on paper. But when you go to practice, if you keep raising the levels of taxes and the requirements for companies, they're going to have to figure out ways to be more efficient. So I think you're going to see a lot more innovation coming out of the people who are be hit hardest with that. And those who can invest will, will, those who can't will be left by the side of the road. Uh, I have a question. I have a question. Sure. Um, okay. You talked about a billion jobs uh, displaced during the pandemic. I mean, can growth, on its own do enough for that or you know what's your feeling about what kind of policies have to be put forth from that and you know and just what's the time frame in order to for that to happen well that's that that question it's a great question it starts with the reopening right and think about where a lot of those jobs will have been lost were in countries that are locked down you know i don't know then i don't they didn't break down the numbers but if you think that you know Ontario is locked down right now, has been for the, it's for the third time, uh, since COVID. You know, if you're locked down and people can't come to your store, you don't need the staff as much as you want to help them. You can only help them for so long. Um, so I think that the issue is a health issue. How do, how can we get to a reopening where companies can feel good about getting people back to work? And, you know, that's why there's so much push for that, but we also have such big gaps in, in countries where they are from a health perspective, we had it coming into COVID. It got exacerbated by COVID. So we got to get people, we got to get the economy open. So you got to get shots out to everyone and you got to get people, everyone in the world who needs it needs to get the injection. So governments around the world botch that, I think, overall. Um, but then you also have to get the training. And I think that's where immigration policies are going to be so important is to create opportunities. Our country was built on strong immigration. And if we get immigration right, you can create more opportunities, but you have to marry that with um, skills. And we have skills mismatch that we have to invest in the right skills. I don't believe that necessarily that free education is the answer for everything. Um, I think you can do a lot of online programs and things like that that'll help considerably. But I just think we have to invest more in human capital to get them better positioned for it. But it starts with really opening up again. Hey, Steve. Hey, Steve. It's Rob. Um, quick comment on um, sort of the um, the SPACs. And it seems like both SEC and some of the policy folks are 
sort of put this in the um, in sort of the um, uh, in the rifle targets here. How do you think that's going to play out? Well, if in on Wall Street, if you have a new idea, it's copied right away, and if if a little bit's good, too much has to be much better. Um, I think they're, you know, I think it's a like any other product we've ever created on Wall Street, right? Um, if you can find a way to create a new edge, um, people will chase it, but not every one of the deals is going to be good. I think there's going to be a, maybe a market clearing mechanism before you get a, a mechanism from the regulators because the results have been not spectacular out of the blocks. I think the average uh, SPAC is down something like between 10 and I, 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 I've seen numbers from 10 to 30 percent um, of, of decline since they hit the market. That'll cure a lot of investors from buying them. Um, so it's really a question of, you know, that combined with regulatory oversight is going to make it a, a different environment. And I think it'll make it better.